How is everybody? I feel like I'm only going to be boring after that video. Like right after the video, I'm just like, it's, it's, uh, I'm just not as cool as that. Um, hey, glad you guys are here. I know there's a lot of newer people. There's always a big surge at the beginning of the year. And then of course, right after resurrection weekend, Easter weekend, and then again towards kind of the end of the year when school kicks back up after the summer. And so um, typically see a lot of new people. If you're new to the church, this week, if you were here last week, if maybe that was your first week, I'll start off like that. This week is a lot more typical for us. Last week wasn't a huge departure from what we typically do, but what we normally do as far as teaching is, is we go through whole books of the Bible. We've been in the book of Acts now. I've lost track. It's been a while. Uh, I think about eight months or so we've been in the book of Acts, and we're only in the 19th chapter. We've got a, a little bit further to go, and we did half of the 19th chapter two weeks ago. If you weren't here or if you're new or, or whatever the case may be, briefly let me catch you up to kind of where we are in the story. And I'll show you a map here in a second so the geography of this will make a little bit of sense. But we've been following a guy named Paul. Paul and his team have been traveling all over what is modern-day Turkey and what is modern-day Greece, okay? And so that's where we've been focusing a lot of energy and a lot of time. And so in chapter 19, the first half that we covered a couple of weeks ago, an extremely eventful half chapter. Um, there's a story of these seven different sons of a guy named Sceva who is kind of this Jewish mystic sorcerer guy. And, and Paul's been doing all these amazing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit in a town called Ephesus. That's where we get the book Ephesians. He's doing all these amazing miracles and these sorcerers see this and they want to manipulate this and use it for their own gain. So they start trying to cast out demons out of people. We see in the first half of chapter 19, that doesn't go so well because one of the demonically possessed guys beats them all up, right? Says they start streaking down the street naked and bloody because this demonically possessed man beat them up. Now, all the people in Ephesians heard about this, right? Because when seven guys go streaking bloody through the streets, word gets around pretty quick. And so uh, the people of Ephesians or the, the Ephesians heard about this, started respecting the name of Jesus more. And not only that, it kind of brought to light some things in their lives that they needed to change. So a lot of the Christians, new Christians, they're, they're baby Christians, they noticed that a lot of the books that they would read were tied to demonic things or to the occult. So they started pulling out their books, they piled them up in the street, they lit them on fire, and they burned what was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 137 years worth of salaries, worth of books in the street, right? And so it's interesting, a very, very eventful half chapter. Now, the second half of chapter 19 is dramatically different, and I'll explain why here in a second. But last week, we talked about ridding ourselves of evil things, not out of legalism, right? I'm not going to make a list of all the movies you need to get rid of or books you need to you know, get rid of or, or whatever. I'm not going to do that. That's legalism. You need to have that relationship with God where you kind of come up to, to, with that list on your own, if you will, right? So we don't get rid of evil things because of legalism. We get rid of evil things because we love Jesus and want to honor him. We also get rid of evil things because we want to be full of the light so we can share that light with our spouse or our kids or our work environment or our school environment or whatever the case may be. That's why we rid ourselves of evil things. This week, we're going to talk about something a little bit different. And guys, I'll be honest with you, it's extremely unpopular. Uh, I will also say that it's not my idea. I'm going to quote the Bible a lot today, and it's one of those very uncomfortable parts of the Bible that people don't want to listen to. It upsets a lot of people. Here's what we're going to talk about. 
that patronage or, or, or friendship with the world is detrimental to the Christian faith. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's funny, uh, yesterday I was sitting at Starbucks and I'm studying for this a little bit right before I come in. I do that every single Saturday. I get a cup of coffee and I read over my lesson real quick and then come in here and, and do it again and then and, you know, all this stuff begins. Uh, but an older gentleman came up to me and he goes, hey, you know, you don't know me, but we're friends on Facebook. Isn't that funny anyways? But anyways, you know, we're, we're, we're friends on Facebook and, and uh, my wife and I are interested in coming to the church. Why, why would your church be a good fit? And I responded with, our church is not a good fit for a lot of people. And then right after it came out of my mouth, I'm like, Corey, that's not a good way to get people to come to church, is it? You know, like, and so I had to like rethink what I was saying. But it's funny, I knew I was teaching this lesson and that this lesson is not gonna be extremely popular with a lot of people. But this is why we go through whole books of the Bible. This is why we don't skip over the hard stuff because we need to talk about that too, okay? And so I'll say some things today that you may not see eye to eye with me on. It's okay. Again, I'm gonna defer back to the word of God over and over and over again. So I'm gonna kind of like, you know, step back and say, well, it's not really me you're disagreeing with. But anyways, um, but I, that was passive aggressive, wasn't it? Like, it's going downhill quickly this morning. So no, but I'm gonna do my best to show you the word of God, hopefully show you the heart of God through this message. And we're just gonna have to chew on it a little bit. Okay, but it'll be, it'll, it'll be a big one, all right? So let me uh, pray. And um, we will dive into this. You should have a notes handout in front of you. It has everything I'm going to say that's going to be on the screens in that. If you have the app, if you click on services and sermon notes, extremely convenient. It's got all the scripture and it's got all the notes that you're going to see on the screens. Very, very convenient, okay? So it should be easy for you to follow along, all right? We're in the fifth book of the New Testament, the 19th chapter. We're going to start in the 21st verse, all right? Let me pray and we'll jump into this. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We want to tell you thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that we have the opportunity right now and that we live in a nation, God, to where we can freely talk about you. We can assemble together and worship you, God, without fear of being shut down or arrested or hurt for this, God. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you, God, uh, that we are an open-minded people, that we are an objective people, that we come and we want to break open your word and study it. God, Lord, I pray that you touch everyone in this room that's not a believer, that they feel welcome this morning and and that they approach this, God, with an open mind. And Lord, keep your hand on every believer and let them have an open mind. God, we pray that you bless every church in our community, every nonprofit in our community, God. And we pray that you strengthen us this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 21. I'm going to read a little bit and I'll break it down. Now, just to let you know, there are two names in this that I have heard the pronunciations a million times, so I'm not ignorant to it. My tongue just won't let me say these two names. So I'm just gonna probably mumble when I come across their names, and you'll know. <laughs> After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and <laughs> he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. 
you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run the risk of our businesses being discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one and all of Asia and the world worship. Okay, so after the events that I talked about earlier, after the book burning, after the botched exorcism by these seven sorcerers, after all that crazy stuff that happened in the first part of chapter 19, it says that Paul resolved by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. The way he was going to go back to Jerusalem was backwards, and I'll show you a map here in a second. He was going to go through Greece, travel through Greece, head all the way across the Mediterranean back to Jerusalem. Now, here's where we are, okay? This first circle is where Ephesus is. Now, when we say Asia, that's not Asia like we think of Asia today. It's the western side of modern-day Turkey. That's where this is, okay? Ephesus. Now, what he wants to do is hop over the Aegean Sea, go through Macedonia and Achaia. We know that as Greece now. He was going to travel through Greece and then head all the way back across the Mediterranean Sea back to Jerusalem. A lot of traveling. This is Paul's third missionary journey, okay? This is what he wants to do, all right? So after this, if you're still with us, hopefully you'll still be with us after this week, Rome is going to be the focus of the book of Acts. Why Rome? Because Rome is the focus of the world during Paul's time. And Paul knew that he needed to go to Rome and create a healthy Christian community. This was the spot on planet Earth that was the the center of all culture, the center of all governmental structure, the, the center of everything artistic, everything funneled from Rome. And Paul knew that's where I have to end up. That's where I have to go. Okay, And he will end up there, but not the way we think, but that's for a later day. So Paul sends a couple of assistants ahead of him. As Paul hangs out in Asia Minor, the western side of Turkey, a little bit longer, he sends two of his protégés, Timothy and this other guy's name, Aristus, that's the best I can do, and they sends them to North Greece. Now, this first guy we know virtually nothing about. We don't know that much about him. The second guy, Timothy, we know a considerable amount about him. He was Paul's protege. He was the one that Paul put a significant amount of time into this young man. He became a leader at the church of Ephesus. Two books of the Bible are written exclusively to Timothy. He was one of Paul's closest teammates, okay? We know a lot about this guy. Now, what happens is this. Things had been going really, really well in Ephesus, really, really well. Uh, A lot of well-known people were becoming Christians. Even the head of the the synagogue had become a Christian, like the church was expanding and it was making a huge impact, positive impact on the city. But in the middle of that, there was a merchant man that made silver shrines of the goddess Artemis. We talked about her recently. I don't know if anyone's seen Ready Player One yet. We went and saw it this last Thursday. One of the main characters is named Artemis. Interesting. So anyways, Sorry. Um, So this guy would make little shrines of the goddess Artemis, also named Diana. And so this was affecting his livelihood. The more people that became Christians, the less people who worshiped Artemis. And this guy made these little trinkets about that. So he intended to start 
a riot. Now, the problem was an economic problem. So people from all over the world, the Bible says, would come to Ephesus to see the temple of Artemis. Just like we would go see, I mean, it's not just like, but similar to how we would go see Mount Rushmore, or we'd go to Washington and see the different, uh, different monuments to all the different presidents. People would come, and of course, whenever you go see a big tourist mark, there would be shops set up where you could buy little trinkets, right? Now it's coffee mugs or maybe like a little bobblehead thing or something goofy that you would buy in a souvenir store. Here they would make little bitty gods of the, of the goddess, right? They would make Artemis, little bitty silver Artemises. And so this guy made substantial money doing this. And so Demetrius the silversmith was not upset that the Christians worshiped a different God. That's not what bothered him. He was upset that they were encroaching on his livelihood. They were encroaching on his pocketbook, right? His wallet was getting thinner because of more people becoming Christians. Now, for him, it was a money thing. But all of us do this in some way. Demetrius's way of life was being changed by the impact of Jesus in the community. And in order to preserve the lifestyle he was comfortable with, he had to attack the Christian faith. Now again, not everyone in this room struggles with money. Money has never been a driver for me. I mean, I'm glad I have enough to pay the bills and do some fun stuff every once in a while, but money's not a motivator for me. But I've had other things that were motivators for me that have detracted me from God. All of us in this room, all of us in this room will push back on the teachings of the Bible at one time or another in our life. We will rebel against the teachings of Jesus because eventually the teachings of Jesus, if we let God get into our life, there will come a point where we will see things that we like that contradict what Jesus likes. And so we push back against those things. And the reason why we push back against those things, all of us in this room, is because we are ignorant to the fact that God's way of living is always better than our way of living. Man, you guys are awfully quiet this morning. But if we will put the things of God first, that he knows it will be better for us in the long run. Let's say, for instance, this guy Demetrius became a Christian, lost his business. God is faithful. God would have given him another way to provide for his family and to provide for his kids. But he was ignorant to that fact. He was ignorant that God loved him. Here's the other side of it. He goes so far, Demetrius proclaimed that not only all the people in the God craftsman business were going to be financially hurt and that they would suffer, he says the temple of Artemis is going to be despised. And he says even Artemis herself will be on the verge of ruin. Now this is really, really interesting to me. Why would a bunch of people worship a God that other human beings could tear down and bring to ruin? Doesn't that sound ridiculous? What's fascinating is we've all done that too. We've created so many gods in our culture that only deteriorate over time and are not eternal. We've made gods out of cars, right? Out of houses, out of jobs, out of people. And all of these things only deteriorate over time. They pass away. And so it's funny, we look at these people and we judge them how ridiculous that they would worship a God that people could tear down. You guys worship things that I can steal from you or that can burn down in a fire or if bad weather comes, can tear them down. And we make them the focus of all of, just like what Kyle said, of all of our hope and love. It is a ridiculous idea 
and we've all fallen to it, every single one of us. Okay, next part. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and, here's the other name, Aristarchus. That's the best I can do with that one too. Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some another, because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they came together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. Motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they recognized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, guys, now here's where we're going to like get disconnected, you and I. Demetrius began on an economic note. He said, guys, we are going to lose money if these people continue on. But he stirred up the crowd, right? We're going to see here in a second. A big crowd, he stirred up. He stirred them up on a patriotic and religious level. What he did is he knew, <laughs> he knew that if he wanted to stir up a lot of people, he would focus on their national identity and their religious identity. You guys know this is the same tactics that Fox News and CNN use, right? To get you guys angry and pitted against each other, they'll tell you, man, if we let those people in, you're not going to have the, the same America that you've always had. Man, if you let these people do these things, you're not going to have your Christian identity anymore because culture identifies my Christianity for me. No, it doesn't. Anyways, these people try to pit each other against each other by playing on your fears that you're going to lose your identity. And so they talk about nationalism and they talk about patriotism. And there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with loving our nation. There's nothing wrong with even a pride of religious heritage. If you were raised a Catholic, man, I know the Catholics have made mistakes. They've also given us universities and orphanages and colleges. They've done wonderful things, things that we should be proud of. If you were raised in the Baptist church or the Methodist church, there are things that we can be proud of. There's nothing wrong with that. But when these things start to convolute the gospel, when we are more concerned about being good Americans than we are good Christians, there's a problem with us. It didn't go over well last night either, guys. Here's the thing, though. Guys, I was, I was on Facebook the other day, which I've grown to hate Facebook. It's almost like one of those necessary evils that you have to have if you pastor a church or something. And I have it, right? And I've got all these friends. And one day I'm scrolling through. This was just two days ago. I'm scrolling through and I see a Christian man, right? I don't know if he comes to this church or not, but we're friends. I don't know if we are anymore. But, and, and so on his Facebook, he posts a picture of 17-year-old David Hogg. Now, if you've been following the news at all, he's one of the survivors from the Parkland shootings in Florida, and he's very vocal against guns. He's 17 years old, right? So this Christian man, right, this patriotic Christian man, posts a picture of a 17-year-old high school senior and says, what would you do if this man showed up at your house? And you wouldn't believe the responses. 
I'd kick his A-double-S. I would give him a bullet to the head. I would shoot him. All this stuff. A couple of people who are actually running for office in this town were writing things like this. So I pull out my phone and I'm starting to type. And Alicia's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just going there, right? <laughs> and so, so I pull out my phone and I start typing a response. And the first thing I said is, hey, you guys know this is a kid, right? And kids sometimes act like kids, especially when they're being driven and, and manipulated by adults that don't know how to raise them correctly, right? So he's a kid first and foremost. Secondly, secondly, I believe that word that a lot of us claim to follow says, don't return evil for evil. So I don't care how wrong you may think he is, put a bullet in his head, what the heck is wrong with you? That's murderous, that is evil, that is wrong. And so when we start to put our love for country and even religious identity above acting like Jesus, something's out of whack. Something is incorrect there. And so whenever they're putting on, and, and I just, I, I kind of let them have it on here. This is ridiculous. This is maniacal. This is crazy. And so the point is, people want to play on your fears. They want to manipulate you and pit you against each other. We need to have enough discernment and wisdom and be filled with Jesus enough. We're not called to shoot our enemies. Jesus said you're called to pray and love even those who persecute you. That's what Jesus says. Awesome. And so Gaius and this other guy that I cannot pronounce his name became the, the, the victims of this rioting. They go into this amphitheater so they, they shove everyone into Starwood, right? They all go into Starwood. There's 25,000 people shoved into this huge amphitheater. And then they drag these two men in with them. Now, Paul wanted to be there too. But the disciples of Paul said, dude, you don't need to go there. They, they will rip you to shreds. Not only the disciples of Paul, but the leaders. Some of the leaders of Ephesus said, don't go to this amphitheater, Paul. They will kill you there. So he decides not to go. Now, here's what's interesting. Luke records that there's, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 people crammed into this amphitheater. And it says that people are shouting one thing, other people are shouting another thing. And Luke, it says this in the Bible, most of them didn't even know why they were there. Like typical mobs right, right now, right? Like typical riots that happen in the United States now. News anchors will come up like, why are you so mad? They're like, nah, we don't know. But you know, they're throwing TVs <laughs> through businesses, right? Most of them don't even know what everyone's upset about. What are we protesting here? No, I don't know, you know, but I heard Trump was in the vicinity, you know? So like everyone just, just goes nuts and this confusion and this anger. So maybe the most prolific thing I will say today, this is a, a good thing to know. Whenever passion and ignorance are combined, it becomes extremely dangerous. Whenever you combine passion and ignorance, that's when people get hurt. That's when, that's when cities get burnt to the ground. That's when awful things happen. It's okay to be passionate. It's okay to peacefully protest. It's okay to, to, to call out injustices, but we need to be learned about those things. We need to be knowledgeable about those things, and we need to be Christ-like when we do those things. Martin Luther King Jr. was a fantastic example of that. Passion combined with knowledge and with the Holy Spirit. That's what that man did. So as they're in this, this huge riot, right, this huge fuss, this poor guy named Alex, he's a Jewish guy. We don't know a whole lot about this guy either, but they kind of volunteered this guy to be the spokesman for the Jews. It's funny. They said they pushed him to the front. 
hey, Alex, this is what you're going to say. And they shove him up to the front. And Alex gets to the front, and he basically says, hey, we're not responsible for, for what's going on right now. He was sticking up for the Jews at the synagogue, saying, we've never given you guys a hard time about Artemis or your shrines or any of that. Obviously, his defense didn't work that well because the people saw that he was a Jew. That shows that they were racist, right? They saw that he was a Jew and for two hours started shouting at him, Artemis, great, great Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over again for two solid hours, okay? Last part. So when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis, remember this part, and the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who aren't temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session. There are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, we're going to get into some really controversial stuff here in a second. But the city clerk of Ephesus was kind of the equivalent to a mayor. He's anonymous. We don't know who this guy is. He's not a believer. He's anonymous. We don't know his name. And he was essentially the mayor of, of Ephesus. He shows up, though, and he kind of brings everyone down a little bit, like, like brings some peace and order. Now, the reason he was so concerned about peace and order was in the time of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was in charge of the entire world virtually, right? But what they would do, if certain cities complied to their rules, they would let certain cities be self-governed. They had their own government, and if, uh, Ephesus was one of those cities, and so this mayor of Ephesus knew that if we riot, if we act crazy, they're going to take our freedom from us. We are not maintaining the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, and if we don't maintain that, they're going to strip these, these different uh, rights that they've given us, okay? So that's why he wanted to calm them down. Now, the city clerk refers to Ephesus being the temple guardian of Artemis. We've already talked about that. They have a famous temple with the god Artemis in it. People come from all over the world. We already know about that. But he also says something interesting. He says, and the image that fell from heaven. Now, most theologians believe this is a meteorite. There are 33 different locations in, during the time of the Roman Empire where meteorites, they didn't know they were meteorites. They thought they were rocks sent down by the gods because they would look different. Typically, they would be of black color. They would be dark, and they'd be about two to three foot in diameter that they would fall and they would build temples around these meteorites, and they would become places of worship. Now, this is where I'm going to have to be very, very careful, but I also want to be kind of straightforward. We read this, and in the age of reason and science, and I hope you're a Christian that still believes science is okay, but when, when we have our Christian beliefs, when we have scientific proof, and we know that meteorites hit the earth, we look at this and we say, this is, this is kind of crazy, right? It's, it's nuts that people would worship these rocks that would fall from the heaven. So this is the Kaaba in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. Now, this is a place 
where literally billions of people face five times a day and they pray facing this Kaaba. This is the first mosque on planet earth. Now, the story, according to Muhammad, about the mosque is a stone fell from heaven, a black stone, about two foot in diameter. It wasn't black when it fell, according to Muhammad, but because Adam and Eve touched it, the sins of humanity made this stone black. It sits in one of the corners of the first mosque ever built. Look how many people are in that picture. Every year, 15 million people travel across the world in hopes that they can get close enough to see through this little, this little window in the Kaaba this black stone. So it's interesting. People have not changed much over the course of human history. And even though we know science, and even though we know this is a meteorite that has fallen, there are literally billions of people on planet Earth that look to this as a holy site and worship this environment. Interesting stuff. So how did they handle the offense? Though many people had turned to Jesus in Ephesus, it is a stretch to say that the Christians ruined the economy in, in Ephesus. That's a stretch. It's also a stretch to say that the entire belief structure of Ephesus had fallen apart because of the Christians. That's, that's a stretch. But nonetheless, the ones that had been affected by the Christians wanted retribution, and how did they do it? They sued them or tried to sue them, what, what we do in North America, right? Someone offends us, we sue them. And that's what they were doing in Ephesus. They wanted to sue them in court. So the city clerk called for the people of Ephesus to calm down because the Christians hadn't broken any laws. They hadn't blasphemed Artemis. They hadn't done anything destructive to the economy of Ephesus. And though this mayor, this city clerk, he handled the situation extremely well, he defended the Christians, but we don't need to get confused. This man was not a Christian. He did not defend their beliefs. And so though he acted in a very good way, he was not a Christian and he was not building a bridge between himself and Christianity. That's not what was going on in this story. So what makes the second half of chapter 19 different? We talked about the first half of chapter 19, which is very eventful. We see conversions, we see demons, we see all these miraculous things happen in the first half of chapter 19. In the second half, we don't get any of that. Paul's not even in the second half, really. So there's no mention of any of the major characters. There's no mention of the gospel being spread. There's no mention of any of these things. So why is it even in there? What's interesting about the second half of chapter 19 is we see this delicate balance of how Christians live in a non-Christian world. We see how Christians have to do this delicate balance of balancing our spiritual walk and kind of our civil secular walk, if you will, that we're in this world. We're not of this world, but we're in it. And there's no way of getting out of it, right, until we die or Christ comes back. So this situation with the mayor that showed them compassion, the Christians could have taken that to an unhealthy level, and they could have built a relationship with someone that didn't agree with them. And I don't mean that like they couldn't be friends, but they could have taken this acceptance by the world to an unhealthy level. Let me see if I can make this make sense. So we need to be careful with patronage from the world. Though we are to build bridges in business, I don't know if you guys have lived in the real world or not, but I mean, if you're a Christian, you're going to do business with non-Christians. You're going to do business with people that have vastly different views from you. That's fine. We need to build bridges in government. We need to have friends that are not Christians. Of course, we need to be careful with that. We need to have boundaries with that. But we need to have good relationships with people that don't believe the same things as us. 
I think it's, it's Hebrews that says, we are to make every effort to live in this world at peace with everyone. That's what Christians are called to do. But we as Christians need to be extremely cautious about fitting in too well in the world. So this is what a theologian said in the early 1900s, a man named G. Campbell Morgan. He said, the church persecuted has always been the church pure. There's a guy named Tertullian in the second century that said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is through persecution. It is through hard times that the church is typically its healthiest. It's when the church has been patronized, when the church has been in unison with world governments, and when the church has been in unison with world cultures, that it actually hasn't worked out very well for the church, that it has paralyzed the church. It has set the church back when the world accepts the church completely. I know that sounds crazy. And I know some of you are like, well, what the heck? Here's the thing. If Christianity is ever completely accepted by the world, something has gone wrong with Christianity. Total acceptance is a bad thing for the Christian faith. Like I said, we work to build bridges, we work to love others, we work to show them the light of Christ, but patronage with the culture of the world is detrimental to our faith. It is harmful to us. Well, Corey, where do you get that from? From Jesus. Jesus said this in, in John chapter 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you. Guys, here's the hard facts. If we are following the principles of the Bible, there is going to be a spirit of the world, a culture of the world, a philosophy and ideology of the world that will always hate us for our allegiance to these, to these words. And some of us don't want to accept that. That's why churches try to play more secular music and we try to do these cheesy ways to get people in. We try to do these very secular, non-Christian methods by bringing people into a church. I think that's dishonest and unethical. Here's the other thing. By whatever means you get people in the doors, you're gonna have to keep doing that to keep them in the doors. So if we get people in the church by in another way besides Christ, we're gonna have to keep them in the church by some other way besides Christ. Jesus says, if you were in the world, they'd love you. But because I, Jesus says this, because I have pulled you out of that philosophy. I have pulled you out of that ideology. I have pulled you out of that culture. Because I've pulled you out of that culture, the world hates you. That means Christianity will never be the most popular thing on planet earth. I know we're the largest religion right now on planet earth, but all the teachings of the Bible are not applied by the two billion people that claim to be Christians on planet earth right now. We will never fit in completely with the world. Jesus also said we're in this, but we're not of this. Now again, the Bible calls us to be peaceful, temporary residents in the world. There's no way around that. This means we function within the culture of the world, but we're not shaped by the culture of the world. We're not led by the culture of the world. Paul says that in Romans 12. We're in this, but we're not led by it. We're not molded by it. Our, our, our thoughts, our way of doing things are not the same as the world's. We don't use the tactics of the world. We don't stab each other on the back to get ahead in the corporate world. We don't become selfish and materialistic. We're the opposite of the culture of the world. It's not all about you. As a Christian, it's all about him and it is all about other people. The world says if they hit you, hit them back. 
Jesus said, if they hit you, offer them your other cheek. The world says, if they steal from you, steal from them or take what's yours. Jesus said, if they take your shirt, offer them your shoes, right? So Jesus is counterculture to the ideology and the principles of the world. And we are called to live at a higher standard than that. That we are to outdo each other with honor. That we are to live honest lives, dedicated lives, sacrificial lives. That it's not about the easiest way, it's about the right way. And we are called at a higher standard than this world. Now, what some Christians have done is they have taken that and become arrogant with it. Well, the Bible says I'm a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, right? So we've started talking down to non-believers. We've started treating people like we're better than them. And that is not the case. Even when Jesus came to earth, God on earth, right? He came and he said, I didn't come so you could serve me. I came so that I could serve you. And he took off their shoes and he washed their feet. That's the example that Jesus set for us. Do we live at a higher standard? Yes, but that's to love other people better. That's to honor God the Father better. That's to make our communities better. That's to make marriages better. So we don't look down at people. And here's the thing. With biblical knowledge, it means we have to read the Bible. In order to share the gospel, one must know the gospel. That if we have biblical knowledge, if we pray, if we let the Holy Spirit of God lead us, listen, we can effectively love other people, we can honor and respect other people without compromising our faith without compromising our beliefs, without compromising our convictions. The problem is, in the name of love, which we don't even know what that word means anymore, in the name of love, though, we have made a lot of unions with people that are not going the right direction. And we're so afraid as Christians of offending our Muslim neighbors or our Hindu neighbors or our atheist neighbors or whatever. We're so worried about offending people that we are allowing people to drive straight to hell. You guys are with me, right? Well, man, I love so-and-so. I don't want to like tell them that it's wrong to cheat on their wife. Really? You want their kids to suffer? You want their spouse to suffer? You want their eternal soul to suffer? Man, guys, we're just going to, I'm just going to set this precedent. I love you so much that if I see you doing something that's going to send you or your family to hell, I'm going to tell you, not because I don't love you, but because I love you so much. So whenever we make unions with people of other faiths and we're too afraid to say, hey, man, I love you, I respect you, I see some of the good in what you believe, but that is not the truth. Well, I don't want to offend anyone. That's just not the example Jesus set for us. Jesus was extremely offensive at times, extremely. When Jesus showed up and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to heaven except through me. That's offensive. That's offensive but it was the truth. And only the truth sets us free. That's it. We can have friends, deep friendships. I have deep friendships with people that do not agree with what I believe in. I have relatives that do not agree with what my wife and I believe in. I love them. And when the moment is right, when the opportunity is right, when I feel like I have, I have, I have a rapport with these individuals, all of those people in my life know exactly where I stand and they know exactly what I believe and they know what I disagree with in their lifestyles.
They know that, but they also know that I love them. We can be effective at sharing the light with people without compromising our biblical standards. We can do that. But it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes being filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be isolated from the world. That's what's what's happened to us. We've isolated ourselves and looked down on people. Or people have gone the other road and we've just accepted everyone and everything regardless if it lines up with this word or not. So we've gone to these two extremes. That's not where we're supposed to go. We're to speak the truth, speak it in love, build bridges, show others that we care about them. And then we have to leave the results up to God. Do you know you're not responsible for the results? Did you guys know that? The Bible says we plant the seed, we water the seed, and God gives the growth. We can't do that. We plant the seed, we cultivate it, we build relationships, but we have to let God do the work. Would you guys bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you're in this room and you are a Christian, God has, has challenged every believer, everyone that calls himself a Christian, he has challenged us to go out into this world like sheep among wolves. That's what he said. That we are to go out into a hostile environment, an environment that will never accept us. The Bible is very clear about that. The culture, the ideology of the world will never fully accept us. It doesn't mean we isolate ourselves. It doesn't mean that we look down on people. It doesn't mean that we hate people. That's not what it means. It means that we need to show people that there is a better way of living. Jesus showed up to the woman at the well, right? He didn't condemn her. He didn't put her down. He didn't make her feel awful. But he pointed out to this woman that you are living in a way that is not right. You're living in a way that is going to lead you to destruction. And through love and through conversation, but also through truth, Jesus led this woman into a relationship with God. That's what we're called to do. Yes, through love. Yes, through building bridges. But also through the truth and being honest with people. Not compromising. If you're in here and you are not a believer, I know that we have not always done well with this. I know that. And I want to tell you I'm sorry. If you're not a believer in here, I pray that the people in this church, and this is a good church, I pray that we always respect you, that we always treat you with dignity and honor, regardless of what you believe. I also pray that you keep an open mind and that you're objective and that you keep looking for the truth. If you're in this room, we have people at the front to pray for you if you need prayer. We have communion all the way around you, and you're welcome to help yourself as long as you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins. But I want you to be encouraged. If you will pray, if you will let the Holy Spirit lead you, if you will know at least the the simple principles of the Bible, you could go out and touch the hearts of men and women. And God can show them that there's something better than this world's culture, better than this world's ideologies and philosophies there's something better. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. We pray, God, that you keep us strong, Lord. Keep us uh, hungry, God, for the truth. Lord, let us love all people, God, passionately and diligently, Lord. 
Let us show grace and mercy to people, God. Lord, we just pray, God, as we get prayer from, from other people today, as we take communion, that you just honor us, Lord, and protect us and walk with us. God, bless my brothers and sisters until we meet again. Help us, God, to be lights. Help us, God, to be encouragers. Help us, God, to be shoulders to cry on and, and, and people that build bridges, Lord. We love you. We thank you and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself to communion or prayer.